Hello and welcome to EndNotes, a WooCast production. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School. I'm Rose Kelly, and joining me today is Martin Flaherty, a longtime visiting professor at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School and a professor at Fordham Law School. Marty's work focuses on constitutional law and history, foreign affairs, and international human rights. And today we are going to be discussing his new book, Restoring the Global Judiciary, Why the Supreme Court Should Rule in U.S. Foreign Affairs. Welcome to the show, Marty. Thank you, Rose. So there's a there's a lot packed into the pages of this book. And one way we always sort of start these conversations is by asking, what motivated you to write this book and why now? What motivated me to write this book was really two things. One was the rise of uh, executive power in foreign affairs and indeed uh, the rise of power to the point of abuse. The second thing was the court, um, the Supreme Court in particular and the judiciary in general, being at what I characterize at a crossroads when it comes to playing its role to check the executive in foreign affairs. So you, I mean, the book sort of argues against people who say that the Supreme Court and federal judiciary should stay out of foreign affairs. You're sort of making the case for a more robust role. Why is that? Well, precisely to address the need of uh, a check on the executive branch. Um, uh, and I wrote this book before the current administration, <laughs> so I felt there was a need already. But this administration kind of throws it in high relief to the point of uh, reductio ad absurdum. But uh, on a scholarly level, uh, a kind of related reason for addressing this need was at least in my view, there is a lot of scholarship, some of it inspired by the Federalist Society, a lot of it inspired by scholars who had served in the executive branch, both Democratic and Republican, extolling um, wide-ranging executive power in foreign affairs. And I felt that there needed to be something to counter that. So can you talk about some sort of current or real-world examples of this um, that you're talking about? I know you wrote the book before the current administration, okay. but what, what comes top of mind? Well, um, you know, sadly, the Trump administration is the gift that keeps on giving uh, in this respect. So I think the best example was from a couple of years ago, uh, the anti-Muslim ban and the Supreme Court's response to that in Trump versus Hawaii. Um, and the colloquy between Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, and Princeton's own Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent, uh, is exactly um, uh, speaks to what I'm talking about. Because what Sotomayor said in dissent was that if we just applied the First Amendment anti-establishment clause jurisprudence, then we would look to the real motives concerning this ban. Um, which were clearly to target Muslim you know, countries and Muslims in general. And in fact, she had something like 12 pages of presidential statements to that effect. But what Robert said was, no, we're not going to follow that ordinary jurisprudence. Why? Because this deals with foreign affairs and national security. And because it does, we're only going to look at the face of the ban. We're not going to go behind what the real motives would be. And I think that's a 14-carat example of what the Supreme Court should not be doing. Yeah, that's a great example. So you said that this, you know, you wrote this before the current administration. So there are examples from way back when that you could walk us through that's in the book? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the the most famous historical example in many ways, and one that I extol as an example of the court stepping up to the plate is President Truman 
ordering seizure of the steel mills um, during the Korean War. And what the Supreme Court did was say, no, you can't do that. That exceeds your uh, authority. You did not um, – you were not authorized by Congress. You're not authorized by any direct grant of the Constitution. You're not even authorized by any ongoing constitutional custom. And so the court told the president of the United States during a war that he could not take a step that he considered essential to undertake that war. Which, as I say in the introduction, is one of the reasons why I taught that case first when I taught constitutional law in China about 15 years ago. I mean, you know, we talked about Trump and, um, you know, we're living in this age now where we have a president who's trying to assort, assert this sort of authority like you just described. But what do you make of this as we head into the 2020 elections? We've been, we've been talking a lot about the 2020 elections on the show, so... What do you think? Well, interestingly, a lot of what's been going on uh, recently, uh, uh, at least as of the day before yesterday, was largely um, domestic with two big exceptions. One is um, what's going on on the uh, southern border and um, the president uh, incarcerating children, et cetera, ignoring international law, in fact, ignoring statutory law to a great extent. Um, on the justification that the executive has a special role in, quote unquote, protecting our borders is one great example or one horrible example, I should say. Um, the other is with regard to what we what came out yesterday and today with regard to Ukraine. Um, I am waiting for defenses of that. Uh, in the name of the president's broad foreign affairs powers. Uh, so far, the defenses have been he didn't do anything wrong at all. But um, uh, I think a corollary that stay tuned for is going to be the kinds of arguments I'm arguing against in this book. Right. We should note that we're recording this on September 25th. So it's right. important to note that date. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the process of writing the book because we're always cu curious about that. Mm -hmm. um, so how, how did you compile all of this and how long did it take you? you know, what was the process? It took too long. Uh, <laughs> a, a book always takes longer than you think. Um, so a lot of what's in the book I had tested out as law review articles, articles in other scholarly journals. Um, and the other thing about the book is it's self-consciously interdisciplinary because um, my original training, uh, starting here at Princeton actually, was in uh, colonial American and early constitutional history. So the first third of the book is largely about what, for want of a better term, is original understanding. Um, the middle part of the book uh, is about the 150 years between then and now, or almost 200 years between then and now. And there I really had to, you know, learn from scratch going through major cases. Um, the next part of the book was actually a function of what I had kind of picked up by osmosis teaching at the Wilson School, because I draw a lot on the scholarship of Henry Slaughter, Bob Cohane, and draw upon international relations scholarship and see how that relates to all the questions I'm interested in. And then the final part of the book is more what we lawyers would call doctrinal. Okay, let's apply all of the lessons from all these different disciplines and see and prescribe how cases should come out. 
So what was the theme that you saw throughout all these? Is that sort of your thesis point? Well, sort of the main thesis was that the, you know, original understanding and the original conception of the court's role um, in foreign affairs was that it was to play as fully a robust role in foreign affairs as domestic affairs. And indeed, that's carried out by the court, certainly early in our constitutional history. And my thesis essentially is the court played that role until the United States became a power, a superpower, a hegemon. That development tends to redound to the power of the executive. And so at that point, the executive is making more, ever more bold claims for its foreign affairs role till we are at the point we are today. Sometimes the court will step in and say no, but more and more, and this was my concern, sometimes the court would relent and talk about the need to defer to the executive branch. And so it sounds like you're, you're thinking it's going to keep on that kind of trajectory? Yeah, I know, absolutely. Because um, now, in one sense, my hope is that some of the spectacular overreaches of the Trump administration in not only in what I'm talking about, but in general, but certainly with regard to what I'm talking about, will cause at least more thoughtful people to rethink some of the claims about executive power and foreign affairs that they've taken for granted until this point. You might have answered this in a previous uh, question, but we always like to ask, what was the hardest part to write? Was it that middle section you were talking about? Yeah, it was the middle section. Actually, it was the two middle sections. So the you know having to look at this enormous amount of case law for about 150 years and make sure that I was not missing too much and kind of not imposing a theme on the material was one challenge. The other challenge was the international relations piece. You know, I, I am not an international relations scholar per se, but I know a lot in the building. And so I ran it past some of them um, as a reality check. And they actually were, some in particular, were excited about how I took it the next step to look at some of the constitutional implications of what their work. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, who's kind of the ideal audience for the book in your mind? I mean, obviously, everyone is the ideal audience, but um, does it skew more academic or is it, you know? Well, I think I have two audiences, one very special and one general. The very specialized audience is actually judges, you know, judges and lawyers. But in particular, I really would like Supreme Court justices and federal judges in general to look at this because I think for too long – too many of them have taken for granted this notion that, well, gee, the president runs foreign affairs unless the Constitution otherwise specifies. And so who are we to step in uh, when cases involve foreign affairs? Which, of course, is exactly what the court was doing, you know, early in its history and for, you know, about the next hundred years. So that's one audience. The other audience is just lawful citizens. Because, as Ben Franklin said, we have a republic in, uh, unless, uh, you know, if we can keep it. And the only way we can keep it is if the citizenry remains informed about constitutional law. Definitely. Um, so since we're a policy school, we always ask, and I think you've already sort of answered this question as well, but what would you say are the top policy implications? Well, the policy implications actually probably triggers another audience, right? And the audience is policymakers in the executive branch right. um, because too many of them take for granted kind of unchecked presidential power or at least feel that it's important to push the envelope. And 
One thing I hope it does, at least for some thoughtful policymakers, uh, perhaps in the next administration, maybe even some in this administration, is to think seriously about what the constitutional checks are on executive power and the role that the courts might appropriately play in uh, implementing those checks. Perfectly said. Um, anything else you want to bring up about the book? We're just about out of time. We like to keep these to some commuter-friendly, digestible episodes. But any last take-home messages? Well, I guess the the last thing would be, even though this sounds you know interdisciplinary and technical, um, I did try to write it in a fairly clear, accessible way, precisely because I didn't want this to be one of those books that just you know a few dozen scholars and maybe a couple of you know judges read. I really want people in general to take a look at these ideas and uh, consider them. I think now is a really good time for people to pick up this book, um, Restoring the Global Judiciary, Why the Supreme Court Should Role in U.S. Foreign Affairs is available now through our friends at the Princeton University Press. It's on Amazon and it's in bookstores across the country. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Marty. Thank you, Rose. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on SoundCloud. We also want to thank our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, our audio editor, Bonalise Rosado, and our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by WooCast, the podcast enterprise of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School.